Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favourite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu. The list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. This was not like your typical movie that has your basic first act, basic second act, basic third act. The rule was there are no rules with where we go with this. I had a lot of freedom and and there were a lot of changes from my treatment to my first draft of the screenplay. It was very, it was pretty different. There was a time when I thought the Suicide Squad should fight Superman. I thought that was a very interesting story. And we're back. Welcome to season two of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why. From first draft to the big screen. Because we missed you, we're kicking off the season with not one, not two, but three episodes over the coming week. Joining us for the first is a writer-director who, if I'm being honest with myself, doesn't need much of an introduction. James Gunn's hyper-bright, ludicrously funny adventure comedies have made him a blockbuster cinema household name, known for ripping up the rulebook on superhero storytelling. Having made two acclaimed Guardians of the Galaxy movies for Marvel, James recently turned his attention to another comic book stable of characters, DC. The Suicide Squad, his latest movie, starring Idris Elba and Margot Robbie, sees a group of incarcerated villains from the world of Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman blackmailed into taking on a dangerous mission for the US government. Part reboot, part sequel to a 2016 film with a similar name, The Suicide Squad features, among other things, a talking shark, a grumpy sharpshooter, a homicidal cheerleader, and a man made up almost entirely of polka dots. Together they visit a remote South American island where they do battle with a giant starfish from outer space, as you do. On today's episode, we hear how the film's hilarious screenplay came together. Get ready to discover why James originally toyed with pitting his ragtag team of misfits up against Superman in the movie. Why the American government is the real villain of the film. Why James loves rooting outlandish characters in a humanizing sadness. And how he originally planned to kill a beloved character in the Suicide Squad, only to decide that that would be just too heartless. The film famously coincided with a somewhat tumultuous time in James's life. In 2018, he was fired by Marvel over historic tweets that were deemed offensive by his Guardians of the Galaxy bosses. The Suicide Squad was the project that, in his own words, saved his life. He's since been rehired by Marvel and is back working on Guardians of the Galaxy 3, but in that moment, James feared for his career. Listen out for the philosophy about storytelling that got him through that difficult time and ensured that he came out of it a better writer and a better person. Also in this episode is James's guide to writing great action. 
and how to get yourself out of a corner when you kill a character in your script who, uh-oh, it turns out DC aren't done with yet. This is, as you've no doubt already guessed, a spoiler-filled conversation. We recorded it a few weeks ago before the film's release, and James's team asked that we hold on to it till now to preserve some of the film's many twists. So if you're yet to see The Suicide Squad, please do hit pause now, get yourself to a cinema, or watch on HBO Max if you're in the US, then come back as we dive into this film's major plot points like a javelin-wielding Harley Quinn into the eyeball of a giant alien starfish. One exciting thing to mention before we begin, Script Apart is now a digital magazine. Yes, we recently launched a Patreon page and we wanted to do something fun to market. The result is a 51-page magazine featuring exclusive new interviews with the writers of movies like Palm Springs and The Five Bloods, as well as written versions of some of the most popular episodes from Script Apart Season 1. If you sign up to the Patreon, not only do you get access to the magazine, you also get a ton of perks, including the opportunity to submit your questions for upcoming guests on the show, all for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee. Not bad, right? Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart to get involved, or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, that's the admin out of the way, let's get into it with the incredible James Gunn. Thanks to our Patreon subscribers, that includes Andrea Mann, Edward Wilkes, and Oliver Littleton. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. James Gunn, welcome to Script Apart. Huge congratulations, first and foremost, on The Suicide Squad, which I had an absolute riot of a time watching. Really excited to hear about uh, your process of writing the movie. But first and foremost, I'd love to ask how you must be feeling right now, because you've spoken so movingly recently about how this movie saved my life in so many ways, as you tweeted earlier this week. Now that we're on the precipice of fans being able to experience this story that you've poured so much of yourself into, what does that feel like? Uh, it's exciting. I mean, I'm just really excited. I mean, I'm I'm very simple when it comes to this stuff. I, you know, I'm excited for people to see the movie. People are starting to see the movie. So that's been a really exciting thing over the past few days about getting all the people's, you know, who have seen it from around the world. And uh, and then also being able to, you know, I was just telling Margo this and she couldn't believe it. I've never really seen the full movie <laughs> on a screen and a big screen. Because I edited this movie from home during quarantine uh, with with Fred Raskin and, and Chris Wagner, our editors, and I did the sound on a big screen. But you don't have a final answer print; you don't have a final print at that time for mm. for doing that. And then I did the DI on a big screen, so I've seen the whole picture on a big screen, but I haven't seen the whole thing together on a big theater screen, and I've never seen it with an audience. So uh, that's. Just that little thing is very exciting to me to be able to go see it in the premiere in a couple couple weeks. Well, I have seen it with an audience and wow, you have that to look forward to. From what I've read, James, you were told that you could essentially take your pick from the DC slate of characters. I think Toby Emmerich was maybe nudging you in the direction of Superman, but essentially you had free reign. But you landed on Suicide Squad. Uh, what was it that drew you to those characters right away? I, I know that you loved the John Ostrander comics, but in terms of the thematic and storytelling possibilities of this, these characters, this group, what was it about Suicide Squad that pulled you in? I think that it was just, it was a number of things, but um, first of all, I love John Ostrander's original run. I loved Adam Glass's run at the New 52. Um, I remember when I read that run, I was going, God, this would make a really good movie. That was before I was doing Guardians. 
I would love to make this a movie that would work really well. And then being very jealous when, when David was doing his movie. Um, so all those, th there was all of that, but I think it was, um, it was the dirty dozen war caper films that I really liked from that era and being able to bring back that genre in a really different way. You know, where Eagles dare Kelly's hero, the great escape, all of those things are things that we owe a big debt to with this movie. And it just was everything sort of coming together in a way that I had, you know, was it creatively exciting to me. And it's another ensemble movie in a career full of them, James. I mean, with the exception of super, you seem to love telling stories that juggle protagonists and juggle perspectives. Why do you think that's something that you're you're drawn to as a storyteller? Is it just more fun to play with multiple characters? There's more kind of atoms in the alchemy, or is there like a, a deeper significance to it? I think there's a more simple thing: is that I grew up in a family of uh, six kids, and we were all six kids in, in seven years. Um, so I think it's just my natural dialogue is a bunch of people sitting around talking and joking around. <laughs> that's really like what my my life is like. So. Uh, I think that it, it's just very natural for me to write ensembles and to be able to create different characters who work off of each other in different ways and see how they work off of, to see the way Bloodsport works off of Ratcatcher 2 is very different than the way Harley works off of Bloodsport. This is a podcast about the first drafts of great movies, James. So I should probably ask at this point, what does the first draft of a James Gunn screenplay usually look like? I, I know that historically you've tended to write these pretty extensive treatments that can run 60, 70 pages. And then at that point, you jump into a first draft. Do, do your first drafts tend to resemble the finished movie pretty closely because you're you're quite a thorough outliner by the sounds of it? Well, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I change from movie to movie. Like one of the ways I keep my interest in writing is by changing all the time. It's interesting because I was just talking to, to Margot about this. She When she acts in a movie, her process is exactly the same, whether it's I, Tanya, or, you know, a Harley Quinn movie or whatever. She does the same exact process with the same exact people. And for me, I get bored too easily. So sometimes I just sit down and write a movie. Other times I, I treat it to death. Um, and uh, I think as time has gone on, I've started to say, well, maybe there's a balance there of treatment with freedom that is the best. But this, this subject matter was also a little different because this was not like your typical movie that has your basic first act, basic second act, basic third act. The rule was there are no rules with where we go with this. So I had a lot of freedom and, and there were a lot of changes from my treatment, which was not very in-depth. It was a few pages um, to my first draft of the screenplay. It was very, it was pretty different. And then, uh, but from the first draft of the screenplay to the final screenplay, there were not many changes. So what were some of the evolutions over the course of, you know, from first treatment to when you were in a position where you could start to write? Uh, well, I, I, I didn't know who the villain was going to be at first. I mean, listen, Amanda Waller is the villain, but, uh, but who, who, who were the other villains going to be in the movie? And, uh, and that, that changed a little bit. But I'll tell you, a lot of it, a lot of it came pretty quickly, if I recall. I mean, I think I worked on it for a few weeks. And by the time I pitched it to Warner Brothers, the pitch that I gave Warner Brothers is pretty close to what the movie is today. Very, very close, actually. Um, Bloodsport changed. Like, he kept changing. I didn't know. I didn't know who Idris was going to play. So that changed a lot. 
Um, but a lot of it stayed very, very, very much the same from early on. What was the first step for you? How did you go about starting to articulate what you wanted to do with this movie? Char- picking characters. <laughs> I kind of knew what the type of story I was going to tell was. So the first thing for me was picking characters. And so I just go through the enormous DC li- library for days with, you know, printing up these pictures and putting them on the wall and thinking, oh, that guy works with this guy or this guy works with that guy or whatever, you know, and trying to figure out how they they would work together and getting a, a blend. I wanted it to be like each of these these characters was from a movie of a different genre, you know, or a TV show of a different genre, like, you know, Bloodsport comes from this sort of darker, grim, dark type movie. And, uh, you know, uh, Peacemaker comes from some crappy 1970s TV show. And, you know, Poke It Out Man comes from <laughs> the saddest, ver- the saddest version that ever existed of <laughs> the Batman TV show in the 60s. <laughs> and, you know, there's some sort of Saw movie where Ratcatcher 2 is from and then, you know, Harley from the DCEU and kind of all of these characters coming from very different perspectives and different genres and being put together into one movie. Is this a movie that you couldn't have written until now, just in terms of the sheer confidence required to write something like this? I mean, on top of the mishmash that you just described, you're also jumping around in linearity a lot in this film. Even in that big climactic sequence at the end, you're jumping back and forth in time. I don't think, I don't know I don't know about my confidence, but I definitely wouldn't have had the power to be able to make this movie (laughs) had it been any earlier. I think that it really was uh, a matter of me feeling at the feeling truly confident for the first time ever um, as a filmmaker. Um, And then also being given the, the sort of freedom to do whatever I wanted and not only being given that freedom, but being gleefully given that freedom with, you know, people around me at DC and, and Warner Brothers being very excited about what this movie is. I mean, a thing that, that that people don't know about this this movie is that we showed this movie the first time, like the first cuts that didn't change that much since then, to Warner Brothers uh, about a year ago. And they, down the line, were really, really happy with the movie. Um, so th- that was just, that felt so good because mm-hmm. these are people who, you know, People call suits and they love this movie that's so outlandish. And it was uh, it was exciting because of that. You're obviously like an incredibly visual filmmaker. When you're in that first draft mode, is the director part of your brain at that point plotting on the page all these sort of little visual flourishes that you're going to include for each uh, story beat? Or, or do you try and compartmentalize and just get your story down first? Uh, like, for example, like there are all those creative ways that you build titles denoting time and space into the Suicide Squad. How does the visual side of your work arrive on the page? Uh, All written into the script. Every single one of those uh, titles was written into the script. How it was going to come on, uh, what was the manner of it disappearing? That was all in the script. You know, it's like the songs, all the songs are written into the script. Everything, I write everything into the script. And it is not a matter of, uh, I'm a director first because it is, thinking of things visually and then trying to write down what those visual things are, you know, even having, you know, I have my ear to what the characters sound like. Sometimes it's difficult to let go of what the character sounds like when I'm dealing with an actor. So um, it is uh, all that stuff is, is pretty much part, you know, all those things are written in the script. I don't think 
very little of those things change from early on. So what does tend to change in rewrites? Are you sharpening dialogue or what's the sort of thing that tends to have to be sharpened up? You know, different movies are different things. I mean, I wrote Suicide Squad in, in you know, two months and was done and never mm. changed after that. So uh, whereas Guardians 3 took me more than a year. Um, uh, I don't know why is one is more of a struggle than the other or more complicated than the other, but it is. Uh, but so things changed. Who died changed a little bit. And uh, I had uh, somebody die in the, the first draft that uh, doesn't die. Um, and I had somebody else not die who does die. And uh, um, the second one, you can probably guess the first one, you wouldn't be able to, but that's those kinds of things change, you know, adding scenes, adding where, you know, you know, how much uh, the, uh, the, the sort of antagonists are in the movie and where, how much of them we need to see that changes a lot. Um, the action sequences change a lot. Like for instance, um, when uh, Peacemaker and Bloodsport are having their sort of, you know, dick swinging contest, they're macho killing people and having a contest mm -hmm. over who's better at killing. Like originally that whole, that thing was like half a page that read what I just said. I storyboarded it because I draw the storyboards and that's when it really came to life and exactly what it was and how it worked. And then I took those storyboards and I wrote that into the script. And that happens a lot. I'll write a, something in the script. And because I storyboard the whole movie, as I'm storyboarding it, I'll say, oh, well, this is a nice moment. Or this doesn't work. Or because you start to really put it together from shot to shot to shot. And you see what works and what doesn't a little bit more objectively, perhaps. And so that changes the script a lot. Well, this is a spoiler podcast, so we can talk about it. Who was originally supposed to die, James? Uh, uh, rat catcher too. Really? That's interesting. So what swayed you away from that decision? I'm, I'm not that cynical. I can certainly see where you kept her around as she does have one of the most poignant moments in the film right towards the end of the movie. We'll get to that. But first I wanted to ask there, there is a sweetness to what you write that sits alongside the humor and the sickness in every movie, this one included, there's, there's a woundedness behind the wackiness of characters like Rocket and Drax and Guardians, like Polka Dot Man and King Shark here. I'd love to know what your process is of finding that humanizing fear or desire in your characters. I mean, th there's a little moment, for example, in The Suicide Squad, this lovely little grace note where King Shark is peering out a window and sees a couple kissing in a doorway. It's such a tiny moment, but Within it is an entire story of a shark who longs for connection, but whose appearance perhaps denies him that. That's threaded through through all your work. These moments that aren't narratively important, perhaps, but tell us something about your characters. Why is that important to you, James? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I get I'm touched that you even noticed that, but that is what exactly what that is. That's that's this guy who obviously wants to belong, King Shark, who's pretending he can read and doing all these things. And just that little musical moment with Sola, this beautiful song by Jesse Reyes. And he's looking out and he's seeing this world around him that he loves and yet he will never, ever be a part of. And that is probably the story that I continue to tell and retell. If I have an obsessive theme, that is it. I mean, the way I came into doing guardians was that 
they talked to me about the movie. I thought, this is going to be silly. This is Bugs Bunny with the Avengers. And then I thought, okay, I was in a, stuck in a traffic on the way home from Marvel. And I went, okay, well, if I did do this movie, if there was a talking raccoon, like how could that talking raccoon come to be? And what came in my mind was the saddest story of all time. And that's a story that we're continuing to tell in Guardians 3. So from the beginning, it was this incredibly sad thing. And this character that people think of as a goofy, whatever throwaway character of Rocket Raccoon is the, the deepest character that I had ever written into that point. Um, this this movie, I think that that was same thing was true is, is Polka Dot Man. You know, I think that I, you know, I looked up online, who's the lamest supervillain of all time? And in every single list, it's Polka Dot Man, Polka Dot Man, Polka Dot Man. And I'm like, okay, well, who is this guy who calls himself Polka Dot Man, who's socially awkward enough that thinks he's going to dress up in a Polka Dot Man suit and call himself <laughs> Polka Dot Man, and people are going to think he's cool. Like, when he first looks in the mirror, it's like, I finally got it together. Boy, people are going to love this. Like, I'm Polka Dot Man. Like, he's that socially unaware. Um, he's that disconnected from other human beings that he doesn't know. Well, that character speaks to me. And then to give that guy who's a joke character, this incredibly, incredibly dark backstory about how he became the polka dot man and what being the polka dot man really is, mm. is awful. And I love getting depth to that goofy stuff. And that's true with King Shark. It's true with polka dot man. It's true with all of them. Hey, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about two of our amazing sponsors this week. First, guys, we need to talk about Mubi. Mubi is a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked from new directors and award winners alike. Beautiful, interesting, incredible movies, the best of cinema is at your fingertips, streaming anytime, any place. Personally, I had a blast this week rediscovering the Claire Denis film High Life on the service. If you're into trippy science fiction that feels at once intimate and epic, contemplative and cosmo-straddling, I fully recommend checking that one out. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days by visiting mubi.com forward slash script apart. That's M-U-B-I dot com forward slash script apart for a whole month of great cinema for free. Click the link in today's show notes to find out more. Support for today's episode of Script Apart also comes from We Screenplay. Making progress on your screenplay can be an incredibly isolating experience. You've completed a draft, but what next? That's where We Screenplay comes in. Not only does We Screenplay have amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, they're also the industry's number one script coverage service. Looking for notes on your short script, TV pilot or feature film? With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback that's tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career from folks writing their first script all the way to Oscar winners and longtime producers. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings, hands-on workshops and once-in-a-lifetime learning opportunities that We Screenplay has to offer. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay are here to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation.
Let's dive into the actual film. The opening scene is so thrilling. We whiz through the kind of recruitment of Michael Rooker's character and the this sort of operation that Waller is running. But no sooner have we met these characters that they're gunned down in this explosive beach standoff. It's interesting. Uh, some of these characters are played by massive stars. Seeing them die so early, you kind of realise all bets are off. I'm wondering as well as kind of the element of surprise. Was there anything you were trying to express in how dispensable these characters are? There's a sense of exploitation of these characters that feels quite pronounced in these early scenes and ties into a larger question about how virtuous America is that opens up later on in the movie. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, definitely that moment, really, when that happens, that's Amanda Waller's moment <laughs> because she then turns and says, OK, well, is team has team two made it to the beach? And we realize that she picked out all the people that she didn't like and all the people that she thought were really useless just to use as a diversion so that the team she thought was useful could get through. And it is true that team team two, who we call team two throughout the whole movie, right? Even though they're the team in the movie, team two is pretty deadly. I mean, Bloodsport and Peacemaker are good at what they do. Polkadot Man's incredibly powerful. Ratcatcher 2 is incredibly powerful and, and King Shark's incredibly strong. So they're the real uh, money team. And then there's the other team. You know, mm -hmm. one thing that we cut from the film that sometimes like, oh, I wish we didn't, is that we find out, you know, why is Rick Flagg in that group? And we find out that Rick Flagg, we see a flashback where Rick Flagg makes fun of Amanda Waller's shirt. And he says, it looks like a group of, it's like this really ugly shirt that she's wearing with all these different colors on it. And he goes, it looks like a group of clowns shit all over you. And Steve Agee's <laughs> character, John Economos, is laughing hysterically at Amanda Waller. And you just see death in Viola's face. Like, she just looks like death. And that's that's why he's on that beach. Um, so, uh, you know, but she thinks the rest of them are useless, including Harley. It's something of a red herring opening. Everyone dies apart from Harley and Flagg. Let's talk briefly about Harley, because, I mean, she's such a magnetic character. And I guess on paper, it would have made a lot of sense to sort of center the film around her. She's a very popular character with a solo film already under her belt. And there's a groundswell of love for what Margot has brought to the role. Instead, I'd say Idris is much more the focus as Bloodsport. Why not Harley and why Bloodsport? What was it about Bloodsport that called to you as a character? Um, I think, uh, I think that, you know, really Margot was, um, Margot really, I don't think she wanted to be, and I know she didn't want to be this, the, the film to be centered around her. She wanted to be, uh, uh, she's more than a supporting character because it really is an ensemble film and she's definitely a protagonist for part of the film or we're just with her. Um, and if there are three protagonists, it's probably her, uh, Idris, Bloodsport and Ratcatcher 2. But but Bloodsport, if there's one protagonist, it's Bloodsport. And to me, he's William Money from Unforgiven. He's a guy who's given up on life and uh, and he's the most, uh, you know, toxically masculine guy you can imagine who's not named Peacemaker. And really, the movie to me, that is the the, the social uh, element of that to me is the biggest part of it. Like when you see what who really how how does blood sport become a hero by by being a leader and being what it, but being what a true man is which he becomes totally in touch with his fear with being vulnerable with doing something that no on-screen hero has ever done before which is 
just letting uh, letting Ratcatcher two take care of him mm. at the end of the movie. You know, and we see Ratcatcher two up on the tower with her dad's arm around her, and we cut to her arm around Bloodsport in the same exact way. And Ratcatcher two is a totally different uh, character than the rest of them because she had a parent's love, and the other ones didn't. And that makes her stronger. As, as fucked up as her dad was, she had that love and she wants to pass it on. She says it directly to Bloodsport that, you know, mm. I wish I could give that to you. And at the end of the movie, she's able to. So I think that, um, uh, but that story is what I want. <laughs> that is, if, I, if I wanted to tell one, so, because Harley's story is about, you know, her, her sort of crazy, not crazy belief, but her belief in God and, and what she has purpose and what is it. And she ends up being right. She's carrying the javelin for a reason. It exists for a reason. She's right. We think Harley's crazy, but she's not totally crazy because she's right. When she said God spoke to her and gave her that javelin, you know. <laughs> but before we get to that moment, we of course discover that a starfish-shaped alien that secretes face-hugging miniatures of itself as a means of kind of zombifying people, uh, has been captured and uh, is in this tower. There's all sorts of experiments. This is, of course, Starro the Conqueror, as he's known in the comics. How quickly in the development process did you know that he was the perfect monster for, for the squad to have to face down? I think you mentioned earlier that it took a while to work out that uh, Starro had a place in this film. Yeah, well, I did. It did. I mean, I, I didn't know. I wanted to tell Suicide Squad story. It wasn't like, I don't... I don't know. I mean, when I say a while, I'm not sure how long it took, but there was a time when I thought the Suicide Squad should fight Superman, that they should have to get Superman. I thought that was a very interesting story. But when I came up with Starro, uh, he's a character I love from the comics. I think he's a perfect comic book character because he's absolutely ludicrous, but he's also very scary in his own way. Um, what he does is scary. He used to scare the crap out of me when I was a child. Um, putting those face huggers on on Superman and Batman and stuff. So I thought he was one of the major, major, major DC villains that was probably never going to be put into another movie. <laughs> and if they did, they would do it like the Black Cloud version of Starro, not yeah. like of giant walking starfish. That's <laughs> a kaiju that is bright pink and cerulean blue, like just ridiculously bright bad guy. So why not the Superman story? Well, what was it about that that just wasn't clicking and you decided you had to go in the Starro direction? I think I just wanted to tell some, I think just in the moment I thought Starro, uh, Starro might work a little better. You know, mm -hmm. I also think that at the time there was a lot of question about who is Superman in the DCU? Is this movie outside of the DCU? Is it, you know, and all that stuff that I didn't really want to deal with that much. Yeah. I just want to tell a good story. I can imagine you might have ended up in a thematically similar place though, because of course, Superman is like an icon of America. And well, as the film kind of continues, there's an argument to be made that, you know, as you said, Waller is the, is the real villain. The US is the real villain. Um, Starro, in fact, has that really tender line towards the end of the film. I'm going to butcher it. I'm going to paraphrase it here. She describes how she was happy floating around in space looking at the stars. It, you know, it's you, you kind of explore and turn this third act on its head by this sort of re revelation the, the US were involved in funding the research. They placed it on foreign so soil because they didn't want to risk American lives. What inspired you to take a more critical view of America's standing 
in the world than, than we're used to seeing in big budget movies? What, 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 were you, what from the real world were you hoping to sort of express or explore? Well, is it more critical or is it just realistic? I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, we've been uh, becoming un, un, unfairly involved in smaller cultures for a long time. And this is just another example of that. Uh, you know, I hope that there isn't somewhere in which there's a giant starfish being created by a foreign foreign dictator who uh, America is in cahoots with. But who knows? And I mean, the, to me, the thing was also it was about the fact that the Herreras were a the, the family that was in power were, were terrible and we were in cahoots with them simply because they were somewhat manageable. And then this new guy takes over um, who ends up being just as bad as the Herrera's. And uh, it, it, you know, you know, I mean, that's one of the things when Harley kills Luna, Luna's the better of the two of him and Suarez. So she's actually making things much worse by killing him and, and taking over Suarez. But whatever, they're all they're all kind of bad, and, and America's in cahoots with them, and it just seems real. And um, and I like the dramatic. You know, for me, it's not so much a political statement as it is a dramatic statement because I like where it leads. Rick Flag and Peacemaker with two different people that have completely different ways of looking at it. You know, and Bloodsport at the end, who has a different way of looking at it. You know, those are you know, there's there's Rick Flag who believes. The truth needs to be out there. He's sick of being taken advantage of. And he realizes that what he's been doing with his whole life is doing a lot of things that may not be so good. And uh, and then uh, and then Peacemaker, he Peacemaker doesn't think that what they did was good. <laughs> Peacemaker just says we shouldn't let it out there because if we do, we're going to cause more chaos. And mm. that's what their conflict is over. And. I'm not 100% in disagreement with Peacemaker in that situation because who wants more chaos in this world? Um, you know, and then at the end, Bloodsport is able to say, you know, for my own benefit and the benefit of my friends, I'm willing to cover this up, you know? And so it's a different, different way of looking at it, a more moderate way. So what led you to the decision that Flag had to die? Because you said you mentioned earlier, well, it sounded like no, was I wasn't talking about Flag. He oh, Flag oh, really? Did. I was talking about Pokemon so Man. Pokemon Man, uh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Pokemon right. Man is the one that I was like, man, we're right at the end of the movie. We've been killing a lot of people, and now it's just going to be like the ending of any other fucking movie where you know they kill some guy early on to make it seem like they're going to kill people, and they don't really do it. And mm -hmm. I just knew that there had to be a moment in which. Um, which one of the people at the end died. And it seemed that Polka Dot Man strangely had the most complete arc of all of them at that point where he started out as a loser, becomes the superhero he always wanted to be, and then dies. And who doesn't want to die like that? So it's kind of a majestic death in that way, because he died <laughs> reality, except for that he's only 40 years old. But, you know, um, so that was that was the surprising one to me. And we should mention throughout all this, all this action that we're, we're discussing, you know, everything is rooted not only in this film, but across your in, entire canon. Everything is rooted in character. It's all meticulously laid out, easy to follow. I mean, an example of how rooted in character it is, you know, little details like Harley ripping off a part of her dress and using it as a weapon. You seem to have a signature action style, James. Where does that come from? What, what's the philosophy that guides your, your writing when it comes to action? Well, my, my, the biggest philosophy is that it has to have a story in and of itself. And the Harley action sequence is a perfect example. Like, there's a lot of action movies you go to see, and some great action movies, 
where it's a guy running around, he turns around a corner, he shoots a few people, goes around another corner, shoots another people. Oh, there's another one. Oh, let's stab this guy. Now we're going to stab another guy. Oh, let's shoot more people. Let's, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. really well shot, really well done. Action's great. Who cares? Because it's not a story. Whereas, you know, Harley's, you know, her action sequence has a, has, you know, it moves. It starts out that we see her killing these guys. Then we see her, you know, in sort of brutal. Then she goes into her sort of, you know, umbrellas of Cherbourg ballet moment with shooting the other guys. Then she goes into the action of the the true action in the, and then it explodes into the flowers and the machine guns mm. and her chasing people down and murdering. So, I mean, it just kind of, it's got, it's got to have an escalation there. It can't just be the same type of action over and over and over again. You know, the same thing is true of the endings of movies. Third acts so often are just, you know, a lot of these superhero movies become like, there's just a bunch of war elements of these guys fighting. And then we cut to these guys fighting. And then we cut to these guys fighting. And you're like, well, what's, where's the story there? You know, what's happening? Like there's, no escalation. There's no change. There's no pits. There's no highs. It's just fighting. Um, and so to me, writing action and what I, you know, when I first came to town, like the, the things that I would get hired to like punch up would be action sequences and, uh, and, and comedy. So it's always been a part of what I've done and, and, and writing it is a big part of it. At the end, there's that wonderful moment that we alluded to a few minutes ago. Ratcatcher 2's father, Ratcatcher 1, played by Taika Waititi, he gets pretty much just the one line, but wow, it's a poignant one. Again, I'm going to butch the quote because I don't have it in front of me, I'm afraid, James. He essentially says that he loves rats because they're the most despised creature, but you know they have an importance and collectively they can come together and make a difference. Can you tell me about the power of that line, how you saw it tying into the rest of the film, and why Taika was the guy to deliver it? Well, I think it's it's closer to this, it's a little bit different. She says, why rats, Papa? And he mm. says, you know, that the rats are the most despised creature in all the world. And if they have purpose, so do we all. And that's really what it is. It's like, if rats have purpose, if this thing that's considered the most horrifying, dirty, gross little beast has purpose in uh, the eyes of God or in the world, then Polka Dot Man has purpose and Catcher mm-hmm. 2 has purpose and comic books have purpose and the fans who are watching the movie have purpose and we all, I have purpose and then we all do. That's what he's saying through that, you know, and that to me is what the film is about. And also the fact that in strangely rats to me represent goodness in the movie and the rats are like Sebastianism. He is the most good character in the movie, the little rat. And, uh, and that moment, at the end is the thing that really gets me is the moment between Bloodsport and Sebastian at the end of the movie. That is him accepting the small bit of goodness in himself that he is able to accept at that moment. And to me, the movie's all about that. Peacemaker is, of course, revealed to have lived in a post-credit sequence in the hospital. I'm, I'm curious, was what was the chronology in terms of deciding to do the, the TV show? Was there ever a version of the film where had the TV show not got greenlit, you wouldn't have added that coda and Peacemaker would have just been another notch on the movie's body count? I am embarrassed to answer this question, honestly, but I'm <laughs> going to. Oh, 1,000% Peacemaker died. <laughs> and I'm like, I just fell in love with like the character and I fell in love with John's performance. 
And John and I would have all these conversations about where did this douchebag come from? What does he believe? What's going on with him? You know, who is he? And we didn't get to see it. We get to see so much of Polka Dot Man and Bloodsport and who they are and where they come from and Harley and Ratcatcher. And we get to know them. And we don't get to see as much with Peacemaker. And so I did the thing that I always put down other filmmakers for doing. And I have to own up to it, which is killing a character and then going, "Eh, okay, wait, no, he's not dead. Now, in my defense, to kill Rick Flagg in that moment and bring him back would be different because that's, that is a character. We're really milking that death. Like that's Mm -hmm. like, a real death to have Rick to have Rick Flag be okay at the end of the movie seems to me that would be a cheap shot. Blood, you know, Peacemaker we see go down. He's he's basically a bad guy in the movie, and then we reveal he's still alive. So that's my that's my either my defense or my rationalization, whichever way you want to look at it. But as I started thinking about it, there were so many more things to do with the character, and I could envision his whole world. And so we shot that ending when we started shooting the TV show. You know, so that's that's uh, Amelia Harcourt and John Economos, who are two of the regulars uh, on the, the TV show with with John. Guardians 3 is coming up, as you've alluded to a few times in this conversation. You've said that's the last one of those movies you're doing, James. I'm curious to know what's coming up for you beyond that. Is there anything that you really want to do as a filmmaker, as a storyteller that you haven't managed to tackle yet? Peacemaker season two, I haven't tackled yet. So (laughs) that I would love to do next. Um, I don't know. I don't, I really, I've been going really very, 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 very hard over the past couple of years. I'm working seven days a week, every week for a long time now. And like a day that I only work like, seven hours is like a a vacation to me. So, um, so I need to take a break for my mental and emotional well-being. It's a little crazy that I'm, I'm starting, I'm already working on, you know, guardians three full time. So it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what I'm going to do next, you know, and it, uh, and it doesn't even mean I will, you know, I, I'm not the guy to say never, you know, I can't say, you know, never, I'll never do another Guardians movie. But right now, this is the story that I envisioned from the beginning. It's a trilogy. It's a story of Rocket, who I care about a great deal. I've got to tell his story. I love him. And so uh, this is, uh, this is for me, this is probably it for, for the Guardians. You know. And is there a lesson about um, storytelling and your craft that you've learned doing Suicide Squad that you'll take into Guardians 3, that you'll take into what comes next? Uh, Yeah, uh, being in the creative process and focusing first and foremost on play and story and secondarily on how things are going to be seen by uh, the outside world is the way to go for me, at least. And I can't say that's true about everybody, but, uh, you know, just really focusing on telling the best story that I possibly can without being so concerned with making a hit movie is uh, is good. That's really interesting you'd say that because. I mean, we've talked a lot about craft today, but there was a quote you had in uh, a chat with your pal, uh, Michael Rosenbaum, 2018, good, good couple of years now. And he, you talked about how there's too many people out there who have dreams, but don't love the process of attaining those dreams, the learning of the craft. You talked about how like, if you chase exterior goals, it's a road to nowhere. But if you can learn to love the process of writing and directing, that'll lead you down the road to a richer form of creativity that's much more sustainable and fulfilling. 
And I always thought that was so special. Is that a philosophy that's kind of like really helped you and guided you over you know the last couple of years in particular? Yes, yes, but it, it but you forget it. You know, you forget it. Like I forget it. I can't say you forget it. Maybe you never forget it. I forget it. You know, <laughs> I learn these lessons and then I forget, you know, I forget. And then I'm thinking about money and thinking about, you know, making a hit movie and getting afraid by what people are on Twitter are going to say. And then I remind myself, ah, what the, that has nothing to do with me. That's all somebody else's business. You know, I mean, even, you know, Bloodsport says at the end of this movie, he goes, she says, uh, she says, she's going to kill you, you know. Brad Catcher 2 says it about Amanda Waller when he makes the choice to do the right thing. And he says, that's her business. And he's right. That is her business. He's going to do the right thing for himself because that's the right thing to do. And so that is, you know, that's the lesson that I keep learning um, that, uh, you know, that it, it takes to be not only successful for me, but also to be happy as a, as a writer. And as a director and as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. Um, so, yeah, I think it's something I relearned. Like, it's funny to me, you say, like, I said it on Michael's podcast where I was probably not in the greatest mental state at that time, to be completely honest. I probably sounded great, but I, I didn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, I was, that was at a time when I was like kind of struggling with some things, but I was probably trying to remind myself that that's, that was the way to go. Um, but I think that I've learned those lessons in a deeper, much, much deeper way over the past few years. Mm. Well, I'm so glad you did, James, because The Suicide Squad is an absolute blast. I had so much fun watching it and I had so much fun chatting with you today. It's been awesome. It's good. It's great to have this more in-depth talk. That's great. I've been doing, uh, you know, three-minute sound bites for the past uh, eight hours. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> All good, James. Have, have a great rest of your day, okay? You too. Bye. All the best. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>